Okay, we thank you for joining us on another episode of In Harmony with Piedmont Opera. We are again recording and releasing this episode in the month of February, Black History Month. And we continue with podcasts where we want to discuss issues surrounding race and the experiences of people of color in the opera world and look at representation in the opera industry and how there's still work to be done to create more equity and opportunity for people of color. Making opera accessible to all races is one of the most important goals here at the Piedmont Opera. And we hope you enjoyed our previous episode with Marsha Thompson. And today we're joined by Winston-Salem's own Ken Pettigrew. Ken, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for being a part of the show. Uh, let's learn a little bit about you before we get into uh, some of the heavy questions. How's that sound? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I mentioned Winston-Salem's own. Tell us about your background in this area. Yes, so I am uh, a Winston-Salem native. I have been here for the entirety of my life. I didn't even move away to go to college. (laughs) Um, I have stayed here and uh, worked here and performed here and uh, taken the idea of home very, very seriously. So this is is where I am. Yeah. What do you like most about this place? Oh, boy. Um, I've had an opportunity to watch Winston-Salem transform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you're a young kid watching things happen, it seems like things happen overnight, but it's been years of work and transformation. Sure. Like, I remember going to the opening weekend of Sweet Potatoes <laughs> with oh, my mom wow. back okay. in, like, 2003. Um, so that, by itself, Sweet Potatoes is one thing I really love about Winston-Salem. Uh-huh. But, um it's the fact that we have all of the things that you would kind of want in a place that you would call home, but then you have access within an hour's time to other things that just might not be here mm-hmm. um, that you would love to do. So I, I, I love that about Winston. One of the things I, I love asking people about that have been in the area for so long, I've been in Winston-Salem for about 15 years now, maybe a little more than that. And I love hearing the stories from people that have been here for so long, specifically about downtown. We're recording this episode at the Piedmont Opera offices downtown, but I don't know if you kind of have seen the area of downtown specifically in its growth, but the transformation that has happened here where it was... I mean, you you would you wouldn't be surprised to see rolling tumbleweeds go through the streets yeah, of downtown to, yeah. to what it is now. What kind of transformation have you seen specifically in this area where we're sitting right now? Well, um, in an interesting way, my mom worked downtown and really has worked downtown for the entirety of my life. Actually, uh, she was working at the Journal when I was really young mm. and with the Salem Journal. So I have these really fond memories of, you know, those random days I came to work with her. And there used to be a cafe where Young Cardinal Cafe is now that was called the Horse's Mouth. Um, and my mom still has her tumbler from <laughs> the oh, Horse's wow. Mouth. Okay. Um, and I, I just really vividly remember that for some reason. But there was n- really nothing down here. Right. I, I mean, there weren't really a bunch of places to eat. I mean, downtown Delhi is a long time, you know, long standing. You know, you've got filling station and other places, but mm-hmm. um, downtown is completely different yeah. than when I grew up. It wasn't a place I imagined spending time or or or, or hanging out. It was almost like a treat <laughs> in a way to go downtown, even though there might not have been too much to treat yourself <laughs> to. Um, when you you were down here, but the the transformation of downtown is also um, it, it's complicated 
kind of reality because when you look at this movement of time in you know particularly city planning and city investments it's mm-hmm. this idea of folks rebuilding downtown reinvesting into downtowns for economic reasons and, and others and in the same way um, that means continued lack of investment in other places in the community mm-hmm. so there is always tension in the reality that yeah you know downtown is great and it's continuing to grow and it's continuing um, to become a place that people like to go. But what do you do with that um, when there are still entire portions of the population of Winston-Salem who won't cross 52 or 40 to come into downtown? So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that that that's interesting that you say that. Um, you know, Winston-Salem has been known as the, the city of arts and innovation, and, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the, the performing arts and opera and, and your role in it. Um, tell, before I ask you a little bit about your background, uh, tell me about your experience specifically with the arts and with music um, in this particular area of our state. Yeah, so um, I, I was one of those kids whose grandparent was adamant that the grandkids all have some kind of music lessons, mm-hmm. right? So I started taking piano when I was really young. Um, but that was kind of a, a neighborhood kind of network-based thing. Um, it, it was the same person who had taught my cousin, who had taught other folks prior to that. And so I spent a large amount of time with her learning how to play piano. But outside of that, my um, my experience with the arts didn't really begin until I was really about a teenager. There were little points of exposure um, here and there, uh, you know, with the symphony, with the Mary Starling concerts. And, um, but I'd never experienced opera until for real, until I was in high school. Mm. So, you you know, there's that, that kind of disconnect when it comes to visual art, you kind of just saw it all around you. Um, And, you know, that's the nature of living in a city with, you know, with school of the arts and, and all of the other universities who are here having some kind of arts program as well. So you experience it, but um, sometimes it takes time (laughs) and a little work to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting um, when it comes to, to the upbringing of children, you, you, you frame things as there are certain things that, we want you to do, but there are certain things that you have to do. Yeah. And there are have tos in life. And it sounds like uh, music was a have to for you. Yeah. And I, I mean, I come from a, a really musical family. Okay. Uh, um, some of us are musicians and then some of us just love music. <laughs> some of us just love music. Um, and and so it, it's central to our, our, our life together. Um, and so, it, yeah, it was important that we kind of sh- find ways to share in that together. Yeah. Right. Right. So what kind of music did was was there around your household i mean aside from the things that you were doing in application in terms of your exposure around your your home what kind of music were you listening to what were your your parents or grandparents into <laughs> well um you know my my family is a family of strong faith so okay. you know gospel music kind of really laid the foundation of everything um in, in my life and 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 around me but in addition to that my dad's taste in music has always been ridiculously diverse and so therefore my taste in music has become diverse because of that so you know i mean in any given day, we could go from listening to James Brown to Jill Scott and then take a hard turn to Zapp and Roger and then take a hard turn to um, 
Tim McGraw. <laughs> um, and, and then take another hard turn to some random Yolanda Adams song. And then the next thing you know, you're listening to Katie Tunstall <laughs> and yeah, Horse in a Cherry Tree or whatever that song is. Yeah. Uh, um, and so it's just like that was our, you know, our carpool afternoon <laughs> ride like That's almost great. every day um and so then you know now when i became involved in, in in the arts more at you know as a teenager and things like that the playlist became even more <laughs> even more diverse yeah so then you get a random movement of beethoven's eroica the third symphony interspersed between um harold melvin and the blue notes and yeah. and the delphonics <laughs> like it's a crazy it, it was a crazy kind of upbringing musically but it, it's it, it was such a joy and still is in many ways yeah know? uh but before we continued down the path of music you mentioned that you know gospel music was was a part of your upbringing amongst every other genre it yeah. sounds like um but you're you are you were a, a preacher correct are you still are, are? are. okay <laughs> i know that you were in the past my question was more about if you're still if you're still practicing uh, are um yeah it, yeah spent uh spent some time at wake forest in, uh -huh. in divinity school um and you know i'm just at a point where ministry looks different for me now yeah there are there are a lot of different ways that that can look um and i have kind of chosen my path and part of that is um nonprofit work mm -hmm. and um community service in other kinds of ways okay okay and then um uh, part of your life as well is the executive director over at the uh, winston lake family ymca correct? yeah yeah that's correct tell us a little bit about your your role there why you why you were i mean th there's there's some there's some overlap there in terms of um you know the mission and the spirit of of the ymca but um what what drew you to that particular opportunity um so the community where winston lake is based it has been a part of my life from my my entire life okay um i grew up playing basketball at winston lake okay. um and the person who's the executive director at winston lake at that time is still an executive director in the association now okay um and so that kind of connection it, it's real and it's live but then later in my career um when i was at united way working on a particular initiative it was based in that same area mm -hmm. so um when the opportunity at the YMCA emerged, I looked at it as it was a, you know, a natural movement in, in terms of professional development, but also it put me right back in the middle of communities that gave a lot to me Sure, um, for me to have an opportunity to give back in, in some way and to help bring a really beloved community asset uh, back to some of its former glory. Okay. Um, I love yeah. that. I, I love that in terms of, you know, what, what really drew you to, to, be more involved or to, to stay consistently involved from yeah. childhood to, to yeah, adulthood yeah, yeah. to where you are now. Um, I think you had mentioned that in high school is when you really got exposed to opera, right? Yeah. So what was it considering you had this, this exposure to all these different forms of music? Why did this, why did that one stand out to you? Um, I have always been attracted to stories, um, people's mm -hmm. stories and motivations, um, what leads them to do certain things. And um, opera found its way to being like this perfect combination of, of all of those things. Even at that point, I hadn't seen or sat through many straight plays either, you know, but um, there was something about the way that the, the storytelling and the music um, all become characters of their own alongside the characters mm. who are on stage living out um, living out this story um, so 
Yeah, it, it was just a captivating art form. And then also, you know, the acrobatics of it all <laughs> in some moments, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a human can do that. Like, yeah. how do we arrive at that moment? Right. And so, yeah, th- th- those are some of the things that made opera really kind of like stick out for me for certain. You know, it's it's interesting. I think this is the fifth episode of this podcast that we've done. And in in every conversation we've had, there's been some form of that question that's been asked. And I always expect to, to hear as somebody who's a, who's somewhat, who's not even somewhat, very much a novice when it comes to this particular art form, I, I expected to hear a lot more answers along the lines of the, 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 the way the notes hit you, the way that people can use that. That's the, that's what I want to be able to do with my voice. And not that, not that that's not important, but everyone seems to say the stories are what really draw them to this particular format. Yeah. Um, there, there's a reality when it comes to, uh, to the technical side of singing mm-hmm. um, and even to the technical side of stagecraft, right. Um, that are really important in our arts within themselves that you have to learn. But if those things um, are not foundationally well, then the story can't be told Mm -hmm. um, in in a really powerful way. So the thing is, is that um, opera is artifice, right? Just on its immediate face, it's artifice. And so the thing is, is that in order for it to become convincing, we don't need to be able to necessarily tell that you had to completely reset your body, plant your feet, breathe a couple times before this particular moment came up Mm -hmm. so that it would be delivered in a particularly emotional way. The audience doesn't need to know that that happened, but you do as a performer. And so, um, yeah, that's why the stories I think show up first, um, because opera singers are amazing athletes, um, and, and artists in the sense that we can make you believe something that should not be believable. Yeah. And, and, Clearly, it's it's through the stories, but it's also through what what the voice and the body is capable of in the performance of it. How did you train yourself, your body, your voice to be able to perform in this way? Yeah, so I didn't actually discover that I could sing until I was like sixteen. <laughs> you know, my my mom sings. My dad can sing. He just won't. Uh, okay. yeah, <laughs> my yeah. dad actually can sing really well, and people are surprised <laughs> by that. Um, my aunt sings, so it, it, it's just it, it's around me all the time. Um, and I sang growing up in church and everything like that. But I didn't really realize until I was sixteen. I'm like, oh wow, I can like actually sing (laughs) like this is a thing yeah um and so i was a student at parkland high school um here i was in the ib program at parkland and i was taking an ib music class and ensemble during that time so chorus um at the behest of my chorus teacher there who is also a beloved artist singer and now school administrator here in winston jonathan sidden um and so Clearly, he heard something that I did not understand, know, or hear, and he took the time to help teach and to begin training me and getting me into spaces um, to learn more. So I did a couple years of summer programs at School of the Arts, um, and it was there in both situations that I got to sing for Dr. Marilyn Taylor, who later became my teacher at School of the Arts uh, when I went for undergrad, and for Jamie (laughs) during a master class um, during that time. And (laughs) 
whew, Jamie is a technician's technician. <laughs> <laughs> and that thing wore me out. Sure. <laughs> yep. In ways I still remember. <laughs> you still feel it. Yeah, some 15-ish years later. Like, I, I still remember that. Um, and so then... It seemed like it was in that moment that it became possible that that was something I could do. I was like, hmm, oh, opera is a thing. Like, I can actually do this. And so getting to perform more, singing more, being exposed to languages, being exposed to great singers, because Jonathan took the time to do that, yeah. um, do that work with me. Um, I was just like, this is great. And I can go to college for this? And so I did. <laughs> yeah, at, uh, right here at UNC School of the Arts. Yeah. Um, so you, when did you start seeing performances? When, when did you see kind of your first opera performance or, or even any musical um, performance live? Um, I'd seen some musical performances prior to that. Pl plenty mm -hmm. of musical performances prior to that. But really leaning into them in um, maybe middle school for like symphony performances. But it really wasn't until high school until I saw my first fully staged opera. Okay. Um, and that was Deflator Mouse. <laughs> um, uh, I can't remember exactly when that was. But Jonathan was singing the character of Alfred okay. in, in that show. So, you know, a bunch of my friends and I, we went in our minds to support him. And for me, it was just like, wow, um, what an experience. Because, you know, people know know the overture. They know tunes from that. They, you know, they know uh, Adelaide's uh, aria, Minor Marquis, and all of these things. But um, it was an experience. And it was something I'd never really encountered before. So that's when it really started. And it kind of continued um, after that. Yeah. And so as, as you see the performances and you become enamored with, with the art and the people involved, was there a, a moment where you started to, to see the impact or notice um, if there were, if there were or were not people of color that were performing? Yeah, that was, that's really interesting because that very performance, the, um, the singer, the soprano playing, um, Adele Adele, um, was a black woman. Okay. Um, and then there were a few, uh, smatterings of black folks in the chorus, um, I'm just like, oh, black people do do this, um, and 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 it was around that same time I was starting to have exposure, you know, to Leontine Price and to uh, you know Shirley Verrett and Grace Bunbury, Leona Mitchell, um, and um, you know Kathleen Battle and Jesse Norman, you know the the names folks know in in terms of black singers, but having an opportunity to actually see a black singer on stage mm -hmm. was was really actually really impactful um it may not have been clear in that moment but it became impactful the longer i've been doing this work yeah and so maybe maybe you name them whether it's performers you've seen live or just knew their names and then heard them but what were the, some of the performers that inspired you as you were getting more and more involved in this particular art oh boy um so i i, I count him as a friend now but um another school of the arts grad named Michael Redding, which lots of folks know. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's been singing with us a lot. He played Cole House in our production of Ragtime um, last year. Um, I got to work with him several times over the course of um, my college years, mm -hmm. doing Piedmont opera performances. And while I wasn't a baritone, it was still really cool to see that, you know, Michael 
it has made a career for himself. He, he you know, he toured in Porgy and Bess. And even right now, he just did a world a premiere of an opera during Spoleto Festival, you know, and or it's doing one during Spoleto Festival, like all of these things that are happening. I'm like, this is incredible. And I still really find myself inspired by him because not not everyone makes it in that way to mm-hmm. where it is their living and they get to choose how they live their life. And I, I, I really appreciate that and about how freely he shares about that. So specifically with the with the Piedmont Opera, and you've been you've been very involved as a as a performer. Tell us about how long you've been performing with Piedmont Opera, and maybe some of the roles that that really stand out, the memorable ones for you. So I have been in most productions of at Piedmont Opera since my sophomore year of college. My wow. first one was Il Trovatore, um, and that was fun. <laughs> uh, that that was a lot of fun. Um, and there were some other folks that was their first performance, and we're all still singing with Piedmont Opera, okay. you know. Now, um, I, I I think. You know, in terms of, you know, chorus work, there are some things that can either be like really challenging or just like really impactful. Mm -hmm. And I very specifically can think of three things. Um, One uh, was doing a joint production of The Flying Dutchman with the Princeton Festival um, Mm -hmm. in New Jersey. So I did the production in New Jersey and then came back and did it here um, in Winston. That has been my first and only Wagner opera I've ever been in. Um, But that was a really challenging and kind of heavy experience. Um, because Wagner is not often performed in, you, you know, medium-sized cities <laughs> and, 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 and neither are regional opera companies. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just not something. Wagner's expensive. It's hard. And it's difficult for people to connect with a lot of times. Um, but that was just really interesting for the challenge and that experience. But the other um, was def- one of the others was definitely doing Kevin Putz at Silent Night. Um, and I was a working professional at that point. And it was a hard show to do, to put together. The story was, you know, complex. Um, Many of us were singing in a different language from everyone else. So Mm -hmm. I was in the French army and other folks were singing in other languages. Um, But, you know, there are just so many moments in that, in in that show that, that stay with you Um, because just the truth of the human experience. Again, it's that story situation. And then the last thing I'll name is ragtime. I I mean, I've never seen or done anything like it here, here in Winston. Mm -hmm. Um, and Piedmont Opera has a knack for being able to bring really difficult things to bear. And folks are just like, how in the world did they do that? <laughs> um, and I think Ragtime was definitely one of those things for folks. Um, but it's definitely something that uh, people are still talking about to me um, yeah. in particular. Um and I did so many different things <laughs> during, during that show, but it was definitely one of the most meaningful sets of performances that I've ever done with Piedmont Opera. Yeah, I, I, I want to get back to, to the conversation about um, inclusion in, in all forms of races when it comes to when it comes to, to opera in this particular um, section of the arts. But I also want to ask one of the things we also want to try to do with this podcast is reach different audience, reach uh, maybe younger audiences, people that have not had any exposure to this. And, you know, you said that it was in high school when you started doing this. So maybe we can reach people that are in high school or in college and um, opera. When, when people just hear the word opera, they don't necessarily think of it as something that they might enjoy. But everyone that I've ever talked to, whether it's with this podcast or anyone that's been to a performance says, it's it, it's it was to once you once you try it for that first time once you see it for the first time and you see what is what is what these people are capable of and you see and you 
hear the stories um that it they they automatically say oh this is this this did not mm-hmm. what i expected um what can you say to to anyone who's listening who has not tried to experience this yet um in terms of why they should um for a long time the arts were just not accessible to mm-hmm. to to certain populations of folks be that for socioeconomic reasons or for their particular for particular communities understandings of class um and so my my first level of encouragement for anyone um is to take a, a, a moment to uh, just think about why you feel like opera is not accessible to you and and, and think about what complicates it for you Hmm. um, and ask people who do it some questions. Um, If you have an opera company where you are, you know, shoot an email. Most of most opera companies have education directors like talk talk to folks, ask questions. um, About the art form. And and once you kind of get that sense, find, find a performance. Read the story before you go. <laughs> Read about the story before you go. I know that may feel like it, it will spoil it for you, but it will actually help you enjoy what you're seeing more. Um, because if you know what's kind of going to happen, mm-hmm. um, you can spend less time craning your neck up and down looking at the super titles while trying to also understand and watch what's happening on the stage. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and the last thing I would say is if the opera company around you is having events surrounding performances that are coming up, um, try to pick one to go to um, and pick whichever one feels most accessible to you and mm-hmm. go because you'll be in a room with opera lovers. You'll be in a room with opera novices. And then you'll also probably be in a room with a bunch of regional performers mm-hmm. and the folks who lead in the opera company um, and, and then go to a performance. Yeah, Go and know that there are things in the building to support you, <laughs> both yeah. people, super titles, all kinds of things there to support you. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a really good answer. So back to back to what we were talking about earlier, since the time that you saw your first performance and and maybe fast forwarding to present day, do you feel that opera has become more inclusive? Where would you where would you put things now in terms of where maybe things should be or you hope that they would be? I think opera is in a really complicated place okay, um, because it is a complex and complicated art form um, that was written for specific, oftentimes written for specific people in a specific time to tell specific stories in a specific way. Mm. Um, And I I think a great example in our most recent production of um, La Traviata, um, there's a chorus in act two, I believe that um, the chorus uh, of women sings, um, which is usually known as the Tzingarele chorus or the gypsy chorus. In time now, we will not use gypsy in common parlance. One, because it's an insult um, and, and it is not appropriate language to use. And so how does an opera company adapt to things like that? Well, someone creative like Jamie, he took a moment to say, what is another word that fits here that does not change the bigger picture of what's going on? Hmm. And so it became the Kiromanti chorus, the fortune teller chorus, Ah. uh, which is what they were coming to do anyway. So the the idea of them being gypsies wasn't necessary, you you know. Um, So it became the Kiromanti chorus as a way to respond to the reality that gypsy is not acceptable language um, and that we shouldn't use it. Um, and, And so those levels of complexity and it require 
intentionality by, you know, conductors, directors, um, general directors, artistic directors, all the folks involved in making some of the bigger picture mm-hmm. uh, decisions about a production, that level of intentionality is important because one, it makes your audiences feel safe, but it also makes your performers feel safe, which is really important. Um, and, and then the one the other thing I would say is that, you know, the industry it, it, it is moving and it, it, it twists and it turns because n- new issues and things come up. So opera becoming more accessible to folks has meant more recorded performances, uh, more live streams and things like that, which has also meant discrimination around body size, uh, which sometimes also um, has finally, in most cases, put the practice of blackface for certain roles aside, particularly when there are black artists who can sing these roles, right. who can sing Otello, who can sing I you know who can do it let them do it <laughs> um you cannot say you cannot find one because you can yeah um and if your argument is that we cannot afford one yes you can you just have not tried yeah um and so opera has to own its stuff um, but then for those of us on the inside of it, we also recognize how many complex and moving pieces um, contribute to opera slow walk um, into, you know, modernity, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. The I know it's not meant as a metaphor, but the, the, this, the example that you shared about instead of referring to gypsies, just fortune teller something mm-hmm. that's not offensive mm-hmm. right boy that is such a that is such a metaphor for so many things happening in this, in this <laughs> yeah. society right yeah. now you know yeah um but that's a great example and it really comes down and, and a lot of this comes down to it, it's, it's out there yeah. all of it's out there it can be attained how what are you willing to do yeah what are you willing to do to try I, I, absolutely um and i i think one of the things particularly you know about black singers and I'll, and I'll speak for myself in this sense. Yes. You know, I had a sense of call. So I, I went to divinity school that, mm-hmm. that became my path. But also one of the things that made me pay attention to that was the fact that I did not like the direction the industry was moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been a small person, probably won't ever be a small person. When I graduated, I was the smallest I'd ever been, but that was because I was depressed and tired. <laughs> um, um, and, and so the thing is, you know, in many ways, there are these stereotypes of large bodied opera singers, you know, and mm-hmm. the industry is like, well, nope, we're 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 going to be filming everything. So everybody's got to be skinny and then you become skinny with no talent. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I didn't want to fight that battle. Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't want to fight that battle. I, I was already in black skin and I, in a large body. So I'm already dealing with two very real um, uh, it, points of bias in the yeah. industry at that point. Yeah. And, and maybe you're leading into a little bit the, this next question that I wanted to ask, which was, did, did you experience a time where you presented a role to a professor, but maybe discouraged from, from performing or learning it because of, of your race? Um, nah, that, that luckily never happened for me. Um, you you know, I, 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 my professors were all really intentional about what opportunity, both what opportunities we got, um, and that the issue of race, you being the wrong race for something was, was never something that 
that that came up did you have the ability have you done the work mm-hmm. then this is for you to sing yeah <laughs> um i don't imagine that there would have been black men possibly outside of servants roles possibly not even that in the parisian demi mall but yeah. i've now done two operas one in the chorus and one as a principal set in the parisian demi mall as a black man so yeah. you know no you you say that it's you know when you say it's complicated and the 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 answers aren't as aren't as simple as as maybe the questions may lead them to believe that we're talking about here but i go back to to something that Marsha said in our last episode which was you know she grew up in louisiana Mm -hmm. she eventually moved to new york she said that she faced more discrimination in in new york York than she did in the deep south yeah and I just I, I thought that that was fascinating to hear, but it's it's believable, I guess, because of, um, you know, more, not necessarily about the geography or the culture of that particular city, but just because of the way that the arts were treated in those particular areas, music at music on its own. It, yeah. And, and it, it is on some levels also the culture uh, of those spaces mm-hmm. um there there is a a, a long <laughs> storied and continued history of outward clear discrimination in the south mm-hmm. um and being a person from the south i I see it, live it, deal with it every day. I'm a black man with large hair. Like that, 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 that's, that's complex. It's just me walking down the street. Right. But New York isn't like an interesting place. Other, other spots are interesting places because racism in, in hiring the arts or just living, um, is much more covert. Mm. Um, because the, Reality is that the systems that oppress are the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. How they are lived out is different. Mm. Um, and because the you know, North and other places have this, um, you know, somewhat sense of pride that we're not like the South in some ways, um, they refuse to acknowledge the fact that they still participate in the exact same systems of behavior and often don't check their unconscious biases or they're just outright issues um, with the culture of varied kinds of supremacies. Mm-hmm. I'll say it like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we, we got into this a little bit and you, you touched on, you know, things that opera companies would do. And you mentioned things that little things that Jamie would do to, to help this, this progress forward. I, I want to ask something that, that Marsha also brought up in terms of maybe the role of opera companies in, in trying to, to move forward. And that is, she mentioned that, um, in, she mentioned when talking about in inclusion with opera, she mentioned it not as much on the performance side, but in the audience side. Mm-hmm. She said, when you get more diversity in the audience, that's, that's a good, that's a place to start. That's a place to focus. Do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a both and. Um, I think diversifying opera audiences is absolutely necessary and, and, and an honorable, um, thing to do mm-hmm. um but part of the way that you do that is you also have to tell stories that actually resonate you know resonate with the the cultural and lived experiences of the people you want in the seats um and, and that is difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> um that 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 is really difficult yeah. um and you, you know a lot of times that means that there are plenty of opera companies who have the resources and the opportunity to do new shows, newly written shows by new composers that are explicitly telling black stories and telling them authentically mm-hmm. uh, with music that is stylized in terms of the cultural realities of the characters. Um, but not 
every opera company really has those resources. Right. Now, opera companies can work together, as they do all the time, for joint productions. And that are those are ways to make things happen. Um, but beyond that, if you can talk about how the stories are relevant to us now, um, you can bridge kind of cultural um, gaps or you know, chasms even, um, to, to diversify audiences, but it requires intentionality. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let's close with something fun here. Um, Ken, let's say that you've got friends or family that are coming from out of town and you, and it's, it's for one day or one night only, and you want to give them the best experience that Winston Salem has to offer. What are, what are you, what are you taking them to do? Oh boy. Um, and it, you know it could it could it could or could not include a meal, multiple meals, um, you know, just any, any of the staples that you say. Oh, I got to make sure that you experience this. Yeah, if they're if they are not from here, yeah, um, then there are just a few things that we absolutely have to do. Okay. One, we will probably start the day at Louie and Honey's Kitchen. Mm. Um, and I will force a cinnamon, cinnamon roll on roll. them. Oh, <laughs> I will force gosh, a cinnamon roll on them. They're incredible. And a, and a Parisian uh, tea latte, which mm. is my almost daily go-to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, then, you know, l- l- lunch situation, you know, that might be a, a, a filling station mm-hmm. or, or, or something like that, an opportunity like that. But for dinner, 100%, I'm going to take them to Sweet Potatoes. Yeah, I knew yeah. that was coming. I we, knew that was coming. We, we, where it all started. Yeah, right? where it all started. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely taking, I'm taking them to Sweet Potatoes. And we will wait. <laughs> uh-huh. You will not have as the option. As op- long as it takes. <laughs> yeah, I will not present you with the option. Well, you want to go somewhere? No. We will wait and you are going to be here i don't care how late you're gonna to have to get home uh-huh. we will wait and we will eat here um i, I love uh stephanie and vivian they are wonderful restaurateurs mm-hmm. and so yeah we, we'll go to sweet potatoes and then if we're doing anything at night you know um, if there's like a cultural thing we'll definitely probably go to seeker renault house yeah. you know like th- th- those are options there uh but then definitely if we're going out you know after dinner or something like that you know we may go my, my spots are like the ginger fox in particular mm-hmm. um because the ginger fox is owned by one of both my high school classmate and one of my college classmates okay um so um the fox and the ginger fox went to high school with me <laughs> and to college okay at go. school of the arts uh hey maddie uh, <laughs> Um, and uh, so Ginger Fox and, or, or maybe Whiskey Box or something like that to kind of close out the night. Very good. Very good. Uh, I, I think I'm uh, I think that's we're recording this on a Friday. That might be what my Saturday is now. <laughs> you just laid out my Saturday. Thank you very much. Uh, Ken, we, we appreciate you taking the time to, to answer a variety of questions today. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.